Hey, this is Alex Kohler, and you are listening to another episode of the Go-To-Market Mastery Podcast. In today's episode, we are talking about selling into a hyper-competitive market with our guest, Kate Kennedy. We've got a very long and special episode with a lot of insights, so enjoy. If you can't learn how to close, you better start thinking about another career. And I am deadly serious about that. The reason for the call today, John, is something just came across my desk, John. It is perhaps the best thing I've seen in the last six months. If you have 60 seconds, I'd like to share the idea with you. Hello, Kate. Hello, Alexander. How are you? Yeah, I'm amazing. Uh, we already had an amazing 15-minute chat prior to this podcast, and I think the chat was already, there were already some topics that would worth being in the podcast. So I love the vibe and already looked forward to this podcast for a very, very long time. Um, and yeah, happy that I finally have you here. Cheers. Thanks a lot. And indeed, I've loved your last few episodes. So really excited about it. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, appreciate it. And yeah, maybe we start off because we have a very interesting topic today with selling into a hyper competitive or into hyper competitive markets. And I think you are an expert in this. And that's why I'm very glad to have you here. But before we start, as always, yeah, in this podcast with an introduction round. So it would be great if you can start by introducing yourself, sharing a bit more about your career and what you're currently doing. Absolutely. So as we spoke about, uh, I'm based in Berlin, where I've been for the last eight years. But as I'm sure the listeners can tell from the accent, I'm not German. I grew up in New York City and also spent some time in the Bay Area before moving over. I've, I've spent about now almost the last 15 years in business development, specifically the last eight of which have been in leadership roles. So for the most part, this has also been in the recruiting space. So again, very saturated market, especially over the last few years, exactly as as we're going to be speaking about. So I've built teams all the way up from scratch. So, you know, really in terms of building up that go-to-market function from really day one and scaling it all the way up through to 25 reps strong. One thing that I'm also really proud of with that experience is that about 90% of it has been in bootstrapped companies. So that means... I haven't always had the luxury of throwing money at the problem, right? This is especially relevant for today's market and even more so for companies that are in a hyper-competitive space. Sometimes you can't just add more reps to the fire. You really have to think, how can I do this in the smartest way possible? How can I actually get better at selling and increase the conversion rates throughout the entire sales process? So that's always something that I love to talk about. Yeah, nuggets, absolutely. And you named it in the current market, I think relevant more relevant than ever mm. um and happy to touch on this but before it would be very very interesting since you, since you told me uh entered sales with 20 years how did you even end up in sales oh i love this question um i think this is something that a lot of sellers can relate to i was definitely not a five-year-old who always said when i grew up i want to be in sales i very much so fell into it the truth of it is is that uh during during a my studies, I was, you know, doing a little bit of freelance writing and a barista, really, you know, nothing too exciting or impressive. Uh, and then I realized I, you know, it was about time that I actually get a, a real job, quote unquote. Um, and a friend of mine, honestly, just sent my CV to the company that she was at. And 
that was it. Uh, if I'm honest with you, also, I so again, this was now quite a wise, uh, quite a ways back, 15 years ago or so, when I first fell into sales. I was quite uncomfortable with it. This is, I think, also something a lot of people can relate to. I was pretty much given an Excel spreadsheet and a phone, spent my day cold calling. It's terrifying. Now, I'm an introvert. That might also surprise some people. But this was something that initially I was really kind of taken aback by. But the more that I got really strong with a lot of those skill sets, the more I loved it because there's an absolute science behind sales. So it wasn't something that I ever expected to be in. But the further down the road that I get, that I went, the more I just thought, man, this is actually one of the coolest, the coolest businesses to be in. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel it. I think I also commented under your posts uh, with with something related to it. I think everyone has it, even though extrovert, introvert, uh, the fear of, of calling. And then you switch when you learn these skills and you have a skill that where you just need so less. Yeah, you need a phone and a phone number and you can make money. How amazing is that? And that's the part what I love about this. Absolutely. But Today, uh, other topic, very relevant topic, very interesting topic. So a lot of startups are into or in hyper-competitive markets. And I think you have a lot of experience working with them, consulting them, uh, growing them. And you could give us a lot of insights uh, in selling into hyper-competitive markets, probably also um, service businesses that have these problems that don't have a real fancy problem that they're solving. and um, I would say we start off yeah, by you telling us what are the most or the problems that you see, the most common problems that you see that startups are having when selling into a hyper-competitive market. Mm, yeah. On, so this is something that honestly, I think is really, it's, it almost seems so incredibly basic, but yet every single company skips over when they're first building out their go-to-market function, and that's they get really excited about the product or even the service that they're selling, but they forget about the buyer and where they fit into that. What are the problems that they actually are trying to solve with that product or service in the first place? So this is always where I recommend people start off. I cannot stress it enough. Know your buyer. You have to know their objectives, their day-to-day, what is standing in their way, what's keeping them awake at night, inside and out. I think a lot of onboarding processes, for example, always begin with company uh, history, the vision, the product features. I'd honestly say throw that out the window because buyers don't care about your founding history or they don't even actually care about the product you sell. They only care about their problems. So if you understand your buyer's problems, you're immediately standing out from 99% of other sellers out there that aren't trained on that. So this is a key competitive, competitive advantage know your buyer, know their problems above all else. Mm, yeah, abs- absolutely. Um, so focusing on problems is actually one thing. Um, but there are, of course, in this world, a lot of problems. And uh, some solutions are very fancy and some problems are very complex. And some problems are very common and some problems every startups have. And probably in this case, we have created a very, very competitive market because if there's an easy problem and um, there pop up easy services that solve this problem. So how can you really build a value prop out of this um, problem that seems easy, that seems co- uh, common, but a lot of startups have it? So what, what are your, your experience with this? 
So one thing I would mention is that really the vast majority of my experience has been in complex sales. So even though we're talking about you know, recruiting services here, I wouldn't necessarily say that the problem is quite as simple as it seems on the surface. So for example, if a company might even be maybe making the wrong selection on the vendor that they work with, the partner that they choose, there's, there's honestly a lot of other things that can go wrong for them. So this is really what I want to touch on. Now, from a buyer's point of view, they might open a conversation with, I need to fill eight roles. These are the titles. This is what I need them by. Seems simple on the surface, right? It's not. Now, what you need to dig into is first, what's going to happen, obviously, if they don't make those hires? What's the impact of mucking this up? And then also, what are the alternatives that they're looking at? Now, this is where it gets really juicy. What is the risk of them considering those alternatives or even sticking with the status quo? So one thing that I always love to talk about here is really the importance of highlighting the cost of inaction. I think oftentimes sellers will simply, especially in recruitment, just try to fill the brief. Don't do it. It's a trap. Honestly, I would... Once you know enough about the scope to know, okay, more or less, this is what I should be putting together in terms of you know, time that would be allocated or resources that would be necessary to, to fill this, put it to the side, just forget it for a second, and only focus on what's motivating the buyer. What needs to happen in their organization to move the deal forward? When you're speaking, obviously, with the contact itself them, themselves, they're going to have their own perspective on this, but also who else in the organization is going to have different perspectives. Oftentimes, you're going to be speaking with a head of talent. Maybe they're talking about a brief for their CTO. What are the CTO's priorities? So I think oftentimes when things seem simple on the surface, they're not. We really have to dig in as sellers. And then this is also how we can, again, really stand out by just getting, getting to the root of a lot of this. I mean, man, it really helps us differentiate ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what I see is, I think what a lot of people do wrong is that they're just not creative enough. They just are stubborn and say, yeah, but uh, there is no real impact. For example, mm. now we we hired planes or avi aviation, yeah? And um, I worked with somebody in our team and she said, yeah, you know, there's not really, it's not like sales where you can quantify and tell the revenue. And I said, but why are they hiring then? So mm. do they even need this role? And then we found out, so you know the industry better than I do. So what, 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 is, what is the reason? Is it, is it like people are, so what, what, what is the attrition that they have? Okay, yeah, attrition is very high. So why is it high? Yeah, because pilots are overworked. Yeah, okay. So let's approach it this way. So we get a statistic where we say, okay, 80% of all pilots go within the first year because they are understaffed okay, we have a problem that we can leverage. And maybe maybe it's exactly the thing that the hiring manager or the people or the team leader for this team um, is facing. And that is how we can leverage. So I would say, what is your experience in finding, finding this leverage um, that you could use to really, yeah, get the deal done? First, you're so, so right about that. And I really, I love your example too of just, why? And because you're exactly right. Sometimes someone might say, oh, no, there's no real impact. Then why are you hiring this role? Because it's, you're exactly right. Sometimes even the champion, the person that you're speaking with, might not see it. And you actually have to ask them questions to almost help them trigger this own thought process that's happening in their mind. So you're spot on about that. It's really important to 
just kind of dig in. So I think there's really a few, there's a few angles that you want to look at when you're trying to, to make this happen. One, of course, is exactly as we just spoke about, we want to ask questions in terms of, you know, understanding what's going to go wrong within the buyer's world from their perspective. But we often, of course, in sales are, to- are told to educate our buyer. One thing that I think is often lacking, though, in sales training is what does that really mean? So really, the best way to educate a buyer, I think, is to help them see the risks that they might not even see for themselves. Like, for example, there are a number of different recruiting models out there. All of them have their pros. All of them have their cons. Now, depending on the one that you're selling, you might really want to highlight the risks of those other models that exist or even other competitors that they might be looking at that have a similar model as well. So again, if you're asking questions about what would happen if that risk plays out, this is a really great way to get the buyer on board. Because again, if you tell them directly, hey, if you, do, if you go with this, obviously that's a mistake. No one's going to listen to you. Buyers don't like to be told what to do for obvious reasons, just as human beings, it doesn't feel good. But if you ask them questions about how certain risks could play out within their organization, this is a great way to really, really highlight this. Yeah, amazing. Absolutely agree. So I think another thing that is crucial, um, you as a team leader managed um, a lot of a lot of SDRs, reps, um, know it, is the mindset. Yeah, the mindset regarding the product you sell and regarding the audience you sell to. Um, and also maybe the response you get from them. So in your experience, what mindset and what attitude is necessary to try to thrive in a highly competitive market? And how do you train your, your people um, to apply this mindset? Oh, I love this. All right. So I want to break this down into sort of two separate parts here. One is how do you what is the mindset? And then also, how do you coach people to adapt to adopt this mindset? I want to tackle the second part of that first. How do you coach people to adopt this mindset? This is one thing that, if I'm being honest with you, took me like stupidly, embarrassingly long to figure out for myself. But that is that coaching and sales are not that different. It is mind-blowing. We all know the cliche, selling versus telling. Telling is just talking at someone. Selling is, again, as we were just discussing, asking them questions to help lead them down this logic path, it's the exact same thing in coaching. So oftentimes when you're trying to get someone to adapt a new way of working, the best thing to do is to, again, help them analyze what can go wrong if they don't make a change in their current workflow. What could go wrong if they maybe avoid doing certain tasks because it's intimidating? What could they also stand to gain? Where do they want to go? And then how can this be a stepping stone to get them there? So I would always begin, again, just by asking a series of questions, understanding their view, validating their perspective by recapping and clarifying, honestly, applying a lot of the same techniques as you would in sales. But in terms of what the mindset is that we really would want them to adopt in the first place, there's a few key things. One, above all else, curiosity. And I mean this from in every possible way that you can. One, they got to be curious about the prospect that they're selling into. They also have got to be curious about, is there a better way at any point to be doing things? Because the reality is, especially when we're talking about top of funnel outbound, things are constantly changing. When we're even comparing what's working today versus what was working in 2019, man, it is vastly different. So you constantly have to be iterating and wondering, how can I improve this? How can I move the needle on this? Uh, So curiosity, super, super important. However, Sometimes where I can see, you know, curiosity maybe 
going off the rails or not being quite as useful as it could be is if it's done without a process in place. So what I mean when I say that is that you've got to be curious and analytical, but you've also got to constantly be making sure that you know you're not just kind of trying things and hoping something was will will stick, you know, throwing things at the wall and just hoping for the best. You've got to really have a process in place that you can constantly see is this working is this not working? You got to be organized. So curiosity and being process driven. These are probably two of the most important most important things. Because then when you experiment, I mean, again, as we spoke about sales as a science, this is exactly yeah. what you need. You need a good hypothesis and you need a good way to track and to look at the data. Is this working? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I I, I, I always highlight it. Um, there's two books, there's McKinsey Way and the McKinsey mm-hmm. Mindset. If you know the books, it's my two favorite books. Um, Hypothesis-driven um, sales or hypothesis-driven process building it helped me so much not only in sales but in my entire life and everything i touch business related so um i will link it in the show notes Um, my two favorite books um check them out great reads absolutely um so what is also very important and especially at the start yeah is figuring out the icp and usp and um what i often see is that people often get this wrong so they think they know their ICP, but then it changes or they um, have an ICP that is just too broad mm. at the start. So how do you go about defining your ideal customer profile? And um, yeah. Yeah, I love this. It's, you're, you're so right. There are two big or most common pitfalls that companies fall into when trying to define their ICP. One is simply don't, or it's just way too broad. Like, you know, they think their ICP is the whole TAM. It's not. You got to get specifics. You're definitely right about that. The other common pitfall that I see is almost kind of wish thinking your ICP. You know, it's like thinking it's it's just the coolest, sexiest logo. Not necessarily. So I want to talk about why approaching it from those two angles is a bit of a misstep. And then what the third and right way is from my experience. So in terms of, you know, just looking first, like thinking, ah, oh, it can be really the entire market. Anyone that we could potentially sell to would be in our ICP. Now, the reason why this is really risky is because now we all know capital is not cheap in today's market. And obviously, yeah. if you're venture backed, clearly you need to make sure that you're focusing where you're going to have the best possible return. And if you're not venture backed, then you're bootstrapped. And again, you got to focus on where you're going to have the best possible return. So either way, you need to be smart about your time. So I always recommend focusing first on where your accounts are going to, are, are finding what accounts are most likely to have uh, the biggest, most pressing problem that you can solve. So you can look for signals that indicate that they're likely to have a near-term need for your service and are therefore likely to convert. Now, obviously, you need to look for the combination of problem and budget, clearly. Uh, but then once you do that, essentially, like this already gives you a much narrower, narrower focus that really enables you to like carefully go through and make sure that your messaging is spot on and really built to resonate. Now, in terms of the sort of like wish thinking definition of ICPs, now, cool, sexy logos are awesome. Don't get me wrong. But if those cool logos don't have a pressing problem that you can solve, it's a moot point. It's not saying that you can never sell to them. It's just saying your product might need to change in order to sell to them. Because that is ultimately the most important thing here, because 
Ultimately, scalability comes down to not only new customer acquisition, but also retention. If Even if you manage to win some of those cool logos, if they're going to churn on the other side, you're going to hit a massive wall that's going to prevent your growth over the long term. So making sure that there's this stickiness simply because you are, again, solving a really important problem for them is really the most important thing. So I kind of already spoke about the third way, I think, by answering why the first two ways are not ideal. Yeah. But yeah, the short of it is you've got to just focus on the on the accounts that have a really big problem that you can solve and again, have budget. That's it. Absolutely. And you know what I see, for example, in the current market, what people do wrong, they're really, really bad at ad- adapting to this. Mm. Um, and for example, what we found is that all these delivery companies, they're currently in a growth war yeah, for market share and they're hiring a lot of sales. And um, yeah, so we managed to work with them, yeah, or with a few of them. And um, the budget question w- wasn't even that big of a topic there. So there are industries out there that are not having budget issues that still need to grow and mm. um, just don't stop seeking for them, I would say, is, 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 is the lesson out of this. Absolutely. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah, they are out there. Um and I think, yeah, it's it's also, it's really interesting because obviously, of course, the, you know, the number of accounts that are likely to convert for recruiting services, for example, it's definitely smaller than it was in 2021. It doesn't mean that they don't exist anymore. It just means that you've got to get crystal clear in your ICP even more so. It's like, it's no longer uh, something that you can kind of sleep on and maybe do next year. You got to do it today. It's so important. Yeah, absolutely. I think... Another important thing that, of course, comes always with ICP is USP. So, of course, and I think even though you should, in sales, focus always on the customer, on your customer's needs, but a question that, of course, when you're in a hyper-competitive market and it doesn't matter if it's recruiting or anything else, it's what are you different? What, what, what are you doing different than your competitors? So how do you approach it, figure it, or how do you figure this out, and how do you create an, an USP that is like, basically attracting to to Mm. people. Yeah, I think there's really two angles to look at USPs. One is genuinely from the product slash service perspective, what is actually different? What are some key differentiators that you have that maybe your competitors don't offer? The other angle that you have to look at it at, and that I think is also going to be really important for any people that might be listening to this podcast to focus on is the way that you position your USPs. Because honestly, even if you've got a key differentiator in the product or service itself, if you're not positioning it correctly, it's a moot point. And even if you've got a pretty average run-of-the-mill product or service, but you are positioning it well and you're really highlighting the value that it can provide, that can actually be more impactful than simply having the service itself or that, that, that key differentiation. So that's to say I would always recommend, if it's possible for you, map out the market understand where competitors sit. A great way that you can do this is also through buyer persona interviews. You can either do this through, uh, ideally, if you've got people in your network, they're awesome to lean on. If you don't, of course, you can also even ask existing customers that are really happy. Hey, you've obviously spoken with other people before you signed with us. What did you like about us that you didn't see with competitors, for example? Do a little bit of research there. That can also really help you find out what is it that you're offering that perhaps no one else does. Yeah. However, again, the way that you're positioning it, I think is ultimately more important than anything else. Because again, if you're, if you're really focusing on how 
what it is that you're selling can help them avoid certain risks, that is much more powerful than simply having a cool feature. Yeah. And I think it's actually a dangerous thing in, in a way because I see a lot of startups or companies that just their payment model is their USP or they're re really, really cheap. Yeah. Or they have a USP, for example. Yeah. Okay. We have, we, we, we're all German. <laughs> yeah. Or we're focused on, on this niche. Yeah. So where would you say, do you, what, what, what could you name an example of a really, really good USP and what does a really, really good USP need to include? Oh, I love this. So I'm going to be honest. I honestly, I'm a little bit always kind of skeptical when I hear USPs like, oh, we're the cheapest on the market. We're the most affordable. Or, you know, we've got, we're all, we're all German or, you know, whatever it could be, because ultimately in sales, you can just as easily, if you're a competitor on the other side, also spin that as a risk. For example, if they're the cheapest on the market, all right, if you're selling a more expensive service, then you can also equally present your USP as being a higher quality service. And it can be very risky for your prospect yeah. to go with the cheaper option. So really, I think what I would think about is not kind of what we're describing right now uh, in terms of being cheap, being German, maybe having you know, verified recruiters or a way that you can easily assess your talent function, anything like this. These are all features. Forget the features for a second. What are the risks that those features help your prospects avoid? That is what's actually meaningful and powerful here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Agree with you. So we're actually coming to my favorite topic today, Kate. Ooh, I'm excited. It's my favorite topic. <laughs> um, and it's objection handling. And it's, uh, it's, bit correlating to USP and pitching. Um, and in my market, what I faced and uh, what's a science probably, what deserves to be a science itself, objection handling, and especially in recruitment services. Um, hey, Kate, this is the ninth call I've got this week for this topic. What? I I'm not interested. What do you reply? I freaking love this objection, by the way. First, not to sound too geeky, but I love objection handling in general. But this <laughs> question in particular. So before I say what I'm going to, what I would honestly respond to this, I just want to take a step back for a minute. Because so often in sales, we get hung up on thinking, I've got to have the perfect rebuttal ready. What can I say to change the prospect mind? And the thing is, that's actually thinking about it this way is a trap altogether. Because you don't. You don't have a statement that just, completely makes them, you know, change their mindset. Rather, you always have a question first. You try to understand. So, sorry, if someone has done ninth calls this week, nine calls uh, this week on this topic, and they're speaking with you too, why? That is very interesting. What is it that they haven't heard yet in those other nine calls? What is it that they need to hear to make this call the last one? That is what matters. Because I, ultimately, I think objections like this are just so fascinating because One, objections are actually a buying signal. It shows that someone is seriously considering your service. So that's great. They're not a bad thing. But also anything that like, like that that's coming up, this is perfect. Because I think ultimately you want to get objections out in the open as fast as possible because it gives you a chance to know what is it that you need to dig deeper on in order to move the deal forward. So honestly, like this, I would just want to know why are they speaking with me still? That's, mm -hmm. There's got to be something juicy there. Yeah. So did you approach this now or did, did you think of this objection now in a, in a call 
uh, so in a discovery call because I fought it in a cold call. So mm. how would you reply in a cold call versus discovery call? Oh, I love this. Yeah. So if this was a cold, so indeed I was thinking about this in a discovery call, but if this was um, a cold call, then honestly, I would still ask a question. It would not change here. I would say, okay, cool. You've got nine calls like this this week. Uh, is this, you know, what is it that you would need to hear to think, great, this is actually worth me having this, this call, this conversation. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Cause I mean, again, anytime someone says no, you've got a chance to find out exactly what it is that someone is thinking about and why that no exists. If we just try to, you know, rebuttal the no without knowing like why the no, uh, why the no stands, we're just hoping for the best that our answer is going to land well. And that's super risky. And also it doesn't really provide any value to the prospect either. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I, I agree with you. And I actually got a, a really, really good objection handling for this topic from uh, a VP sales. Um, and she told me, uh, oh, I hear a bit of uh, like a negative energy regarding this topic. Did you make bad, ex did you make bad experiences before? For example, like this. Yeah. So, That, that would also be a great objection. I'm always trying to be a bit practical in the pot. Um, but now that we started deep in this topic, uh, I would zoom out a bit. And um, of course, this is one objection, but of, you have many of those objections. So how do you handle collecting all these ob objections? Yeah, Finding out what the most relevant ones are and then handling all of them? testing this again and teaching your reps to handle objections correctly. So this is a long process of loops, feedback loops, and then implementing it and using it and being successful again. So what are, you, what are your key tips and tricks to do this right? Absolutely. So the first thing that I always like to, to think about in terms of objection handling is that you can really handle them at two points in the sale. One is obviously after that objection comes up and the other, and this is something that I think is talked about way too infrequently, preventing that objection from happening in the first place. So always analyze your calls, see, or in the sales process generally, is this objection consistently coming up when I say this? I've honestly had experiences before where we always noticed when we pitched something, um, typically a specific feature, We would get an objection and it was always, always the same kind of objection at the same point in the call. And we rephrased it. What we said right before the way that we spoke about the feature, the objection stopped coming up. That's fascinating. So it always look at the patterns there. Is there something that you can do that won't trigger the person that you're speaking to, to think, oh no, there might be a risk here with what they're talking about. One thing that you can do too, is to directly broach that subject and say, you know, oftentimes when I speak with talent leads or founders, whomever it is that you're speaking with, this is something that comes to mind. But let me tell you why this actually helps you avoid this other risk that they might not be aware that they have. This can be really, really helpful just to get in front of that objection. Now, let's say you tried your best. Objections come up anyway. This is inevitable, right? So you, you're on the call. Someone says it's too expensive or, uh, you know, we're going to go with this other competitor instead, whatever it could be. The first thing that you can do here, honestly, take a deep breath. Now, this is one thing that I think everyone struggles with. I know for myself personally, I've really had to coach myself on. You don't want to immediately reply. 
just count one Mississippi, two Mississippi until they're done talking. <laughs> I'm completely serious. Listen to what it is that they're saying, but do not interrupt the prospect. I cannot stress this enough. Now, once they're done talking, then you recap and clarify. So you essentially say, all right, I want to make sure I'm understanding correctly. You're saying it's too expensive. Have I got that right? Yes. Okay. Can you talk to me about why? You know, so ask some questions there. Now, when you say it's too expensive, is it because there's a certain feature that you're not currently seeing that you're hoping for here? Or do you think that it just, it's not going to be a really the right solution for what it is that you're trying to achieve? So that's to say, after you recap and clarify, you immediately dig deeper. Now, the reason why it's helpful to recap and clarify there, there's a couple of reasons for it, really. One is it helps the prospect feel heard. And that is something that I don't think should be taken lightly because when people feel heard, it essentially, as a salesperson, it increases your perceived credibility. It makes them feel that, okay, great, this guy is actually listening to me. Then when you dig deeper, obviously, then you've got a chance to really, you know, like take a minute to think about what is it that I need to dig deeper on? Sometimes we think we've heard an objection. And then I experience this all the time for myself. I say it out loud. And then I think, wait a minute, I, I don't have the full picture here. We know exactly what to ask. So this can be really helpful. Now, once you've gotten to the root of the objection, you've dug as deep as you can, and you feel like you've gotten a really crystal clear picture on what exactly it is that's happening. Like, for example, it's too expensive. Is that because they think their CFO is going to block the budget? Why is that? You know, you've fully understood it. Then what I love to do is to use feel, felt, found. So I understand the way that you feel. Other heads of talent have felt the same way, but what they found was. So what this does is it gives them a chance in a really non-combative way to sort of like rethink their mindset. Again, as a salesperson, you're not telling them, hey, you're wrong. Let me tell you why. You're saying someone else like you also had this thought, but they considered their perspective. Here's why you should too. And it opens that door. Now, of course, some objections are going to be more serious than others. So in certain cases, you might also want to isolate the objection. Like if you're negotiating, you know, hey, I need this discount. Is that the last thing that you need for us to move forward? Uh, but generally speaking, I think this flow of just pause and listen, recap and clarify, dig deeper, and then using feel felt found, I found to be the most successful way. Yeah. Amazing, amazing thing. So um, I think you couldn't summarize it better. Uh, so I love this. Um, but now um, I've talked a few weeks, uh, the podcast is already online, to an account um, development rep who said in the last question, because I always ask, hey, what is one tip that you would give reps just starting out? And he said, choose the right product you sell. So choose the right company and choose the right product. And now I have another issue, Kate. I don't have a sexy software that solves a fancy problem, but rather common service. And I'm a team leader and I need to hire reps and maintain reps. And now how do I set myself and them up for success and build a successful and motivated sales team? Mm, I love this. Yeah, this is definitely something that I've also I've experienced firsthand. So I get it. This is it really draws back to what we spoke about earlier. But first, I would want to understand where do the reps want to get to? So once I know maybe their goal is to eventually be a team lead themselves, maybe they want to found their own company. I don't know, whatever it is, I would want to help them see how what it is that they're doing today is a stepping stone to get them there. So you're right. 
in a, if you're selling a, a sexy product, your life is going to be a hell of a lot easier. Now, I've I know a lot of people, for example, who have worked at you know really great companies like you know Gong or Google or Lavender, just companies that have freaking amazing products. Then they get out on the other side, and they're maybe in a startup where the brand is not so well known, and it's a real awakening. So, honestly, if you can sell an unsexy product, that will make you a ten times better salesperson than selling one that is. So honestly, it is a huge blessing. Now, so if they want to eventually be a team lead, for example, maybe even they want to be, I don't know, a CRO one day, whatever, you can help first understand where they want to get to and then help them understand what that story could look like for them, how this role can actually equip them with the skills that they need to tell their, maybe, you know, the current founder, that story to help move them up into a, a team lead role, maybe even tell a future employer, you know, that they would be interviewing for that story as well, about how they actually took a product that didn't necessarily have a cool brand behind them, and they still had amazing results. The other thing too, is that oftentimes in recruiting, the TCV is small, is um, not as small as it would be even for your standard SaaS product in middle market, right? So that's also another thing that I've often spoken with a lot of reps about. And some companies that I've worked with, our average uh, contract value was really akin to what it would be in the enterprise SaaS sales space. So again, if you've worked with a complex, long sales cycle for a high contract value, and again, you don't have a cool brand behind you, wow, you've got a sharp skill set. And that is something that you can really speak to for the rest of your career. Yeah, absolutely. Um, TCV for the audience uh, is total contract value. Um, Good shout. So it's, <laughs> it's just uh, just translation shortly. So I think you explained it really, really well um, and totally understand everything. And now you have another problem because you have a not attractive buying persona. Yeah, and for example, what I've experienced is that. A lot of people struggle to sell to HR or the TA function because they often lack impact or um, it's just hard and they get many emails because they get often targeted like any leader. But um, what are your uh, tips and tricks to be successful anyways? Yeah, one, I think I just have to say, considering I've been in the recruiting space for so long, it breaks my heart almost that uh, oftentimes people in the talent uh or within a with any given company wouldn't have impact because truly they should be strategic partners in any business. That being said, so I do think that there's also a little bit of variation here depending on the scale of a company. It's true, sometimes in startups, you might find this more in scale-ups often, however, or especially even enterprise businesses, there's very often a high level of data affinity. And, and typically, again, they are seen as much more of a strategic partner than they might be at the earlier stage. So. One thing that I would honestly say, though, is that uh, generally, I think if people are having a hard time selling to certain buyer personas, take a look again at what it is that you're doing. Flip the script, because if it's not working, again, put your curiosity cap on and think about why. What I have often found is that, and I think this is true, not only with the HR kind of like talent persona, this is really true across the board for all personas, don't rely on simply ROI, right? especially in today's market, uh, it's not going to be what gets budget approved. Rather, you really have to focus on COI, the cost of inaction. What is it that they stand to lose? So by telling this story, again, through you know, really 
digging in, understanding throughout the entire qualification process what it is that, and again, also introducing some potential risks they might not even know they have, this is going to be the most powerful way to get them on board. In today's market, no one approves what I like to call vitamins. So basically nice to haves, things that could bring good things for your organization in the future, i.e. ROI, they only approve painkillers, things that make the problem that are existing today go away immediately or can help them avoid an imminent risk cost of an action. So this is always something that I recommend. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely nailed it there. Um, and I see we're getting a bit practical and I, I love that. And I want to get even more practical now. So, and Katie would be great if you could share some of your most successful techniques, strategies, channels, um, or examples even, um, that worked really, really well in a hyper competitive market. Um, maybe, um, on the prospecting side. So getting people in those calls, because I think that's a thing that a lot of companies are struggling as well. Absolutely. Yeah, it's actually really quite fascinating because, of course, in the talent space, a lot of companies grew massively during 2021. Now the tide has gone out. Everyone's seeing who's, you know, swimming with, without their shorts on, so to speak. So it's true. It's, um, it's really a time that you have to, have to make sure you're doing everything you can at the top of the funnel. So I want to quickly circle back to one thing that we spoke about earlier, which is that everything I'm going to say next hinges on whether or not you've actually defined your ICP in the right way. The reason for that is because Again, the world of outbound has changed massively from 2019. The old way of spray and pray will not work in today's market. Rather, you have to really focus on the accounts that are most likely to convert so that you can deliver a really memorable experience for each of them. So I want to get that out the way. Now, in terms of how you actually deliver that memorable experience, at the end of it, you have to go where others don't. So you really have to stand out from the crowd. Now, I can obviously, of course, talk about best practices for you know, emailing and all of that, make sure your message is personalized. So for example, everyone will say a really cliche, congrats on your funding. When they're approaching someone that has just raised a, a funding round, what is that going to look like in the buyer's inbox? It's going to blend in with everyone else. Rather, what you can say is go it a little, a little further where others don't read that funding press release. A lot of people don't know that this even exists, but if you click into it, it'll say exactly where the funds are going to be allocated. So then if you write this message saying, hey, I see that product development is going to be a priority for you in ser after your Series B, boom, that is a really well-researched hook that most people will not bother to take the time to do. So that immediately helps you stand out. The other thing too is when we're talking about channels, everyone that has a leadership title in their profile, is this is going to really resonate. We get a ton of emails, LinkedIn mails every single day. I have ever only gotten three LinkedIn voice memos. I've never gotten a video. I The last time I got a cold call was maybe 2019. This blows my mind. Yeah, absolutely. So if you want to say- Maybe I will cold call you. Honestly, I would love it. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's crazy too, because I've actually checked some tools. My number is actually there. So we know, you know, indeed people just aren't picking up the phone. So when you think about it, like obviously people always want to sort of default to what's easiest. This is actually the most dangerous trap when you want to stand out. If you go for things that are a little bit more difficult, hey, the good news is actually it's going to be more difficult for your competitors too. And they're probably going to be too lazy to do it. So leaving a LinkedIn voice memo, for example, it's one of my favorite ways to do because it's hyper efficient. You just, of course, need to make sure you're a first connection request. You leave it on your mobile. It's 55 seconds maximum. It cuts you off after that. 
great. Most people are not going to do that. I still remember the names of everyone who has ever left me a LinkedIn voice memo. It's going to stand out. Same thing too, if you want to do video prospecting, again, most people don't do it. And as we spoke about cold calling, the last thing I would mention that I think is really powerful, and I think this is going to resonate with a lot of salespeople, because the market has been down, that also means that budgets have been slashed, not only in sales, but in marketing too. So that means that obviously, you know, fewer inbounds are coming in organically, but also maybe their marketing team is able to do a little bit less for them than they were previously, if anything at all. So what I've really found to be awesome in terms of generating demand is also when I look at my account list, what are the, the accounts, the contacts within them that I really want to get back to me? And I will then invite them to a roundtable. This is essentially a closed door digital forum. Again, digital because it's nice and cheap. You don't need to ask your founder or whomever or your team lead for any budget approval. You can just do it over Zoom for free. You invite them uh, in a you know a closed door forum online just to speak about with their their peers, you know, other heads of talent, for example, at startups or scale ups, about current challenges. So, so roundtable kind of roundtable, yeah, exactly, yeah. About they just speak with each other about current challenges that they're facing. Uh, again, with their peers. So this is great, obviously, from an efficiency standpoint, because there's not really so much prep work the salesperson needs to do. It's valuable for the uh, participants themselves, because again, no one wants to hear a brand speak and to present their product in some webinar that's basically a pitch slap. Rather, they actually want to hear from their peers what's working, what's not working. It's really helpful for them. And then it's great for you, the seller, because you get both to hear how are your how are your buyers describing their problems? What are the problems that are coming up most often? And then in those roundtables, people are essentially self-qualifying. So you know exactly who to follow up with thereafter. So these are awesome. I've typically found, honestly, the best kind of like size that you want to do them with is maybe about 10 people. More than that, people turn their cameras off. You know, the extroverts really speak up and it kind of turns into an ad hoc webinar. Smaller than that is fine, but again, you want to be smart with your time. So I think 10 is really the most efficient. Yeah, amazing. And I think that's, I think the overall learning of what you said is is doing your research. Yeah, it's just researching. And um, for example, this podcast, Yeah, if you were a pros on somebody's prospect list and he listens to this pro podcast and refers to it in the first sentence of an email, in the first word of, an, of a cold call, in the first... Um, words of the of, of a memo you immediately listen because I, I think like oh my god he listens to my podcast Absolutely. What, what does he think what does he think so um that is a thing that's really important but listen to a podcast getting to this point takes a lot of work and we also want to keep our reps efficient so staying efficient while scaling yeah and building a scalable process is really important so what are your tips and tricks in scaling, being relevant, doing your research, but having a framework yeah, that is scalable, that you could apply to new reps and get them onboarded ASAP um, and still being efficient. I love this. So one thing that's actually super exciting about the time that we live in is that we live finally in a world of AI. So for example, if you wanted to pull out the good bits from a podcast that maybe a CEO had done and you want to you want to quote them, get the transcript, run it through ChatGPT, give it a good prompt so it knows what to look for. You do not have to listen to the hour-long thing. 
Same thing too. One thing I love is there's a few uh, extensions even for ChatGPT. If you don't have the time necessary to crawl all of those press releases, give them a list of the content of the companies that you need them to to look for the press releases within, and then it'll essentially again, if you have a really good prompt for this is what a head of talent might care about, this is what a founder might care about, etc., it will point out for you exactly what it like anything that might be interesting there, where the funds will be allocated, certain departments that will be growing after that that funding round, et cetera. You can also ask it to look for any recent um, product launches or new geographic expansions that are coming up, et cetera. This makes your life so much easier. So a lot of these things that I think even 12 months ago would have taken a few hours now only take a few minutes. So truly no excuses. I'm going to pause there before I ramble on. (laughs) Yeah. So absolutely. Um, I think what 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 I've seen um, is, uh, or, or what I think is a great f- framework is five times five times five rule from Kylie Coleman. You know it? Absolutely. This is so funny because actually, when you were asking about um, volume versus quality, it's something that I also had in my notes that I wanted to to mention. It's true. It's also a great barometer for hey, am I is my activity high enough? Kyle Coleman yeah. is the man. I love him. Yeah, follow him as well. Also, tip: follow uh, influencers, get inspired, but don't copy. Um, might not work for your industry, but five times five times five rule, just for the audience, um, it's five minutes of research, five min or five personalized points that you try to find, and then five minutes of crafting an email. And I think you don't have to be five times five times five, but just take it as an ish benchmark. And for the personalized points, what always helps there is um, even because you mentioned funding news as a trigger that is so boring that probably doesn't work in most cases um, with personalization, try to look for these edge cases in your Mm. company because they are there, yeah? In the funding newsletter, yeah? What have worked before? Give or create with your team, create some framework where you write down all of these personalized points that you could look for in a in a person there may be account personalized points and there may be points for a person for example a podcast look for a podcast he or she has been and then um just watch it or just watch in the show notes what are the points that could be relevant and then build something and i think this is this is um something how how you could approach this um because I always get the question volume versus quality. and Yeah, uh, you're so right. That is such a good point too. Ultimately, you have to have a process for everything. It's, it's true. It's going to help you move a lot faster. But ultimately, I think we all know today, relying on, quali- on, excuse me, on volume alone is not going to work. I mean, that's yeah. exactly how you end up with a 1% reply rate. Uh, and typically, most of those will also be unsubscribed <laughs> or out of office. Yeah. Instead, of course, you know, true. quality when you're sending maybe only like three messages a day good luck. It's going to take you a very long time to get your meetings book rate high enough um, mm. if if it ever happens at all. So it's true. I think, again, five by five, brilliant. Have a process. That's the best way. Yeah. Amazing. Kate, this was Nuggets, 50 minutes of Nuggets. Thank you so much um, for your time and for all the insights you shared. Um, last question. People will maybe have questions to you. So where can people reach you? Ah, oh, good question. Uh, LinkedIn is always the best place. Uh-huh. Voice memos, please. Kate lost oh, voice. Oh yeah, absolutely. Most points. <laughs> so I yeah, will uh, respond if you do a, if you do a voice memo, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So feel free to hit Kate up or me if you have questions. And uh, yeah, Kate, thank you so much for your time. Uh, 
maybe so much topics we will do another episode in the future awesome cheers thanks have a great thank one. you so much bye bye yeah.